If you have your Bibles this morning, we will be in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one of them uh, that are in the chairs in front of you. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 can be found on page 148 of the church's Bibles. Last week we did the opening verses or the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 through 3, and we talked there as we will talk just about every week as we go forward in our study of Deuteronomy of these two sort of overwhelming themes throughout the book of Deuteronomy. They're kind of arches. And the first one, the most important one, the one that overwhelms all of the others, is the fact that God's promise is secure and true, that he will make his promises come true. No matter if the people fail in the law, no matter what happens, God will be true to his promises. He is always true to his promises. This is the overarching theme of Deuteronomy. We find it not only in chapters 1 through 3, we find it at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and it is littered, it is spiced as you were, as it were, through the book of Deuteronomy, God is good to keep his promise. But there is a second theme that runs through the book of Deuteronomy as well, and that is the explanation of the law, that as the people have received the law from God, what Moses seeks to do now is to begin to explain the law. They have all of the commandments that have been given to them in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Those Moses has already assumed that they have heard, but his duty now is to open those laws and help explain those to them. We are in chapter 4 somewhat in between those two things. Chapter 4 will speak to the promise as it also speaks to his commands, as as the very first verse says, to the commands, the statutes, and the rules that he will give to them. But chapter 4 is more of a prologue, actually, to the law that is to come. So Moses begins to lay out for the people the importance of the rest of the law. Begin with me as we read the first eight verses of this chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today. Immediately as Moses stands up before the people and begins a sermon, he reminds them of the results of obedience to God's commands, the results of obedience to God's command. There's numerous things that he points out in here. One is simply life. You will have life. You will be able to live. If you keep the commands that God gives you, you will have life. On top of that, 
and tied to life is also the ability for you to take the land. If you do what I am telling you to today, if you keep the rules and the statutes that I have laid out before you, you will indeed go into the land. You will inhabit it. You will kick out all of those people that you were afraid of. You will destroy them. You will take the land and you will live in it, dwelling in it securely. And as long as you continue to keep my commands and my rules, you will forever stay in the land. So part at least of the results of the obedience to God's commands is that the people of Israel might lay in the land as long as they possibly could, that it would be theirs to dwell in, that no enemy would be able to remove them from it as long as they were faithful to the commands of God. This is not a small thing. Remember, this is the one thing that kind of is still hanging out there for the Israelites. God has fulfilled a number of command, or a number of promises to Abraham already. They are a great nation. He has delivered them from Egypt. He has brought them faithfully through their wanderings now to enter the promised land. This is the one last promise that he made to Moses that seemingly has not come true yet. They should take the land. And so he holds it out as a promise for them. You will indeed take the land. But there is also another result from the obedience. It seems a bit out of place, frankly. It's not something that we normally think of. But in verse 6, he says specifically that you will then be a light to the people around you. If you keep the law, if you do the things that I'm commanding you today, your rules and statutes, if you are able to maintain these things, notice what he says in verse 6. Keep them and do them. If you are able to, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That if you are able to do what the Lord God has given you, the nations that surround you will not just be in bewilderment of your might militarily, but they will also stand back and say, this is an incredibly wise and understanding people. This people has something that none of us have. They will look at all the other nations around them and they will see something lacking that they particularly find in the people of Israel. In other words, they will be witnesses of God's good favor upon them that these rules, these laws and commandments, will they themselves be a wisdom for the people. And they, the people of Israel, will be a signpost for all of the nations of God's wisdom and his kindness and his goodness. The results, the results of obedience to God's commands. Moses then goes on, and he says this, beginning in verse 9, only, and here's where the trouble starts, only take care. And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. My wife and I have been married for going on 14 years now. And I have, notice that didn't come from her. Uh, She's very happy, I think. She tells me that anyway. Um, And one of the things that makes her happy is that I strive to be the type of husband that I should be And one of the things that husbands do, good husbands do, is finish their wives' sentences. Um, They strive to do this. uh, I can tell, 14 years, I've been working on this. And every time she pauses and I I put out what I think she's going to finish her sentence with and I'm wrong, she gives me that disappointed look, which I know, after 13 years, I know is a disappointed look saying, you should be able to have this by now. You should know, please keep practicing, keep doing it. I want you to get better at it. So don't worry, hon. I will keep working at finishing your sentences for you. One day, we'll have it. 
If we were going to then interrupt Moses here and finish his sentence at the end of verse 9, to make them known to your children and your children's children, given that he's already talked about the rules and the commandments, given that we know he's going to talk about the law, the thing that we would expect most fervently to find here are a number of rules and laws and commandments. What we would expect is for him to start saying, so this is what you have to teach your kids. You've got to teach them, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall teach them not to take my name in vain. You should teach them to keep the Sabbath. You should teach them not to murder, not to steal. And we can go through, as we will have in chapter 5, all of the Ten Commandments, and then the explanation of those coming afterwards. We would expect that that is precisely where Moses would start, but it's not. Moses doesn't start with the commandments. Moses starts with God. You have to know who God is. You have to know who God is. This is what he says from verse 9 through verse 14. Previously, he's talked about following the rules, following the commandments, and he says in verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently. How are we going to keep the soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they, that is the things you have seen, depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them, that is the things your eyes have seen, known to your children and your children's children. How? On the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, and so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. We expect that what we need to remember, that what you need to remember specifically for the law are the actual laws can't very well be obedient to something you don't know. But there is something more fundamental than that that Moses is getting at here. It happens in every single person's life. Whether you have a boss, whether you are a ruler over somebody else, or you have authority over somebody else, whether you're a parent or anything, every time you tell somebody to do something, there is an implicit answer or there is the explicit question as to why they ought to do that. My kids do this all the time. And I get frustrated with it because if I say it, they ought to do it. But at the same time, it's a very natural question. Why am I expected to do this? Which is the same thing as asking, who are you to tell me to do this? What is the reason why I ought to do this? One of the reasons why they need to know God so well, they need to remember this incident before the Mount of Horeb is because this incident tells them who God is. This is their their understanding of who God is. This is their experience of who God is. And they will never be able to keep the commands of God unless they remember who God is. It will never be enough for them. 
No amount of commands will ever be followed unless they truly know who God is. Moses actually sells the experience short here, believing, of course, that you guys have read Exodus 19 or that the people have experienced Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, in verse 16, we read this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is where, as not only from your sake, but for my sake, we can get a little bit annoyed at CGI in movies because there is absolutely nothing that they can't depict visually on a television screen or in a movie theater now. We can, if you can imagine it, there is a way to put it on the screen. There is a way to picture it. What they can't do, what they can't do is get you to feel what's going on there. And what ends up happening is because we have so much amazing stuff given to us in pictures on televisions and on movie screens that our cognitive dissonance, our ability to distance ourselves from what's actually being shown to us becomes greater and greater and greater. We've seen frightening things on television. We've seen things that are amazing on movie screens before, and we know that they're not real. And so we can hear this account of what's going on at the mountain and not be moved in any way, shape, or form by the experience that the Israelites would have had. They got up that morning, walked out of their tent, and looked up what was normally a perfectly clear mountain, and it was wrapped with smoke and fire, and there were sounds and peals of thunder and lightning going everywhere, and they heard a trumpet blast. From nowhere, a trumpet blast that steadily throughout the day got louder and louder and louder until the mountain itself shook. They heard the voice of God beaming out of the mountain as fire from heaven fell on the mountain. It would have been a shocking incident. And then Moses has the audacity to say, come up to it. No wonder, no wonder at the end of chapter 20 or the middle of chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments have been given, we read this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. Moses said, come up to the foot of the mountain. And every single one of them said, no, we're not going to do that. They need to know, they need to remember that that is who God is. That God is a God of ferociousness, fire, and awesomeness. That he is a God who strikes fear into the heart of people, but he is also a God that beckons people closer. That he is a God who not only dragged them out of, Israel, or out of Egypt, pouring out his wrath upon Egypt, but he is also a God not to be trifled with. That he is, as Moses will say later in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24, that he is a consuming fire. 
they need to remember who God is. No amount of commands will ever make you a good person if you don't know who God is because you will never keep those commands. I had a lengthy, probably too lengthy for his liking, uh, a lengthy discussion uh, with somebody this week about the shack. And um, the shack, if you don't know, is a, a book turning into a movie coming out soon. Um, and, and a lot of people have a lot of problems with it, and they should. And I have never read the book. I I don't plan on seeing the movie and haven't seen the movie. Um, so I'm not going to say anything too terribly specific about it, but I will say this. There are problems with the book and in the movie that are not contested by either the author or any of the people who actually support the movie. At the very least, one of the things that's going on is this. There is a man who has a lot of emotional difficulty in his life. He's gone through a great deal of trauma, and he finds God in the shack out back on his back 40. So he goes out to the shack, and there's God. And God in three persons is presented to him as Father, Son, and Spirit. Only Father isn't a father. He is an elderly woman. The Son is, I believe, indeed a son. And the Holy Spirit is presented as a woman. Now, what are the problems with that? I don't care much about anything else the book says. Because from that moment on, everything else has to be wrong no matter what moral imperatives that book gives you, no matter how much good advice is found in the rest of that book, that book is fundamentally flawed because you cannot present the Trinity in terms of bodily people. You cannot present God the Father in terms of a woman. It, you just cannot do that. This is not simply a faction of, of turning around and saying, well, we have to be devoted to these things simply because Scripture is devoted to them and therefore we have to be devoted to them. It's more important than that. All of the good ethical commands that could be found in that book are marred because they don't know who God is. Doctrine always comes before doing. You cannot have ethical commands given to people. You can't even tell people to believe unless they know what to believe in. The reason why so many people have no problem with the book is because they've been taught rules their whole life. Even in the best evangelical churches, they're taught rules and they are not taught theology. They wouldn't know the Trinity if they went to heaven and saw him. They would have to go to remedial theology classes to understand what they were looking at. It's a huge problem. It's a problem that evangelicals will read a book like that and not sense that there is something fundamentally flawed with this. Before Moses even dares to get to commands of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do, he says, you have to know God. You have to know him as he is. A deficient view of God will always lead to a deficiency in obedience. It will always lead to it. Therefore, number three, you ought to live like you know. You went up to the mountain, he said, and you heard the voice, you heard God speaking to you, but at the end of verse 12 or in the middle of verse 12, you saw no form. Verse 15, therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, 
Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness, male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to serve them, to them, to serve them, the things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, then, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Moses says you need to remember what happened there. And then the first thing that he jumps to the first thing he jumps to is the fact that when that fire and that smoke was on the mountain, when you looked up at the mountain, you were able to see things. You are to remember what you saw. You saw stuff, but what you didn't see was a form. You heard. You smelled the ozone from the lightning cutting through the air. You saw the clouds. You felt the vibration of the mountains, but you didn't see a form. Therefore, do not make a form of God. Know God and then live according to that knowledge. This is not, it is not by accident that as God is about to, through Moses, relay the explanation of the law, as it's sort of boiled down and condensed in chapter 4, that the heart of it lies on idolatry. It is the heart of the law. It is the center of which everything else flows that God is a particular God, that God cannot be imaged by other things in the world. If you want to think of it, I, we, we generally think of the law and under the, the image of like the kaleidoscope of the law, that the law is these 600-some laws, and we flip through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and we hit these laws, and, and specifically the weird laws or the laws that are very pertinent to us, and we see them explained, and, and we, we think through all the intricate details of the law. But one thing that is very, very helpful is to imagine that that is sort of like putting dye into water. And what you end up with, if you look at any dye that's really, really concentrated, it almost always looks black. But when you put it in the water, all of the color comes out, right? When we think of the law, we think of it in terms of all of the color. What Moses is doing here is concentrating it back down and saying, this is what the law is about. The law is about idolatry. The law is about knowing God. When the scribes of the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they said, hey, what is the greatest commandment? What do you boil down the law to? He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang everything else. All the laws, all the commandments, all the laws, all the prophets. Everything hangs on this. You have to know who God is. You cannot, cannot have idolatry in your heart. And notice how you're not to have idolatry. 
you cannot make in him in the likeness of anything not just that creeps on the earth, but the moon and the stars and the sun. And there's an incredibly important part of this. Maybe this will help you see this in a fresh way. He says, at the end of verse 19, you can't have your eyes drawn up to the heavens to bow down to the moon, the stars, and the sun, things that the Lord your God allotted to all peoples. What does everything God mentioned here have in common? Every, everything that God mentions here is not unique to the people of Israel. It is known to everybody. It's known to everybody. Everybody can see the moon, the stars, and the sun. Everybody knows cattle and livestock and fish and birds. Everyone knows of these things. They are common. They are everyday items. But God says, I am not an everyday item. You cannot make me general. I am particular. Notice what he says directly after that. He allotted those things to all the peoples, but the Lord has taken you. He says, you cannot make me general. I came to you. I have revealed myself particularly to you. No one else has seen me on top of a mountain. No one else has heard my voice and lived. No one else knows me like I have revealed myself to you. How dare you make me common? Even the passage about Moses, as we look back at that in Numbers 20, it not only calls Moses faithless, but it says to him, you refused to keep me holy before my people. What he means by that is, you made me common. You made me like all of the other gods. You doubted that I would bring my people into the promised land because you were used to all the gods of Egypt who are fickle, who turn around on their word, who are unable to give you the things that you need in the time that you need them, but I am not those gods. You are to live like God is a particular God. He is not anything that you can claim from the outside world. He is distinct and he is particular and he has divulged himself to people in distinct and particular ways. To the people of Israel here on Mount Horeb, to us in the person of Jesus Christ and through the scriptures that bear his witness. The law comes down to idolatry, to the avoiding of idolatry. If you do not know who God is, you will always fall into idolatry. And even, even, when you do know who God is, idolatry is right around the corner. Number four, the results of disobedience to God's commands. There's not just results for obedience, but there's clearly results for disobedience. And you'll see that this chapter kind of rightly sums up all of Moses' preaching on the law in Deuteronomy. This is what he says, When, not if, but when, you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land. He is going to give them the land if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be few, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. He says, listen, 
one of the deep and abiding promises of God is that God will give you the desires of your heart for the good and for the ill. He says, if you want me to be common, I will treat you like I treat everybody else. And you can be driven out of this land and you can be driven out into all of the other nations. And notice the grand reversal that takes here. What does it say back in verses 6 and 7? If you do this, if you keep my commands, the nations will come to you and they will be astonished by you and they will have a light from you about my goodness and my wisdom. They will come and they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And he says, Here though, when you make God common, when you lose the image of God that he gave you at Horeb, what's going to happen? You are going to seek gods from the nations. You are no longer going to bring the nations to you because of your great light, but you will go out to the nations and you will find their gods who cannot speak, who cannot hear, who cannot taste. They've got no sense at all. And you will be like them. You want to be like the nations? I will make you like the nations. I will give you over to them and I will utterly destroy you, and there will be few left. The results of disobedience to God's commands are exactly what you think they would be. God gives you over to the desires of your heart. If you want to be in the world, if you don't want to be God's, you do not need to be God's. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there is, in verse 29, a huge change. And this is the difficulty this here is the difficulty built into Deuteronomy, and it's the difficulty for Christians. While the promise exists for the people, that God will give to people the land, that God will keep them in the land, there is always that if that exists back up in verse 25. If you don't do the things that I command you, you will be excluded from the land, which seems to mean that God's promise is true, but that people have to be obedient to make God's promise true. This is the difficulty that the law poses for us. We have a word from God that says, I will give you the land. It is my word. I will continue to give you my word. The land is yours, but if you don't do it, I'm going to kick you out. And that's a real bummer. So it seems as though God's promise is conditional upon the law. And so in verse 29, it's important that he turns around and says that the promise stands over the law. The promise stands over the law. But from there, he says, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to him. How do we know that? Verse 32, for ask now, of the days that are past, which were before you, since that day God created man on earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials and signs and wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you 
might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, he brought and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to get to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know, therefore, today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. The overwhelming part of that, the overwhelming purpose of that was for God to say, it doesn't matter if you fall away, I will still get my promise to be true. I will make my promise true. There will be a remnant. I will keep them. I will bring you into the land. How do you know this? Because I am the Lord your God who has spoken to you from a fire in a bush to a fire on a mountain. I am the one who has brought you out. I kept you alive when I spoke to you. I brought you out of Egypt with great war and a mighty hand. I was the one who destroyed Egypt before you and I did it before your eyes. I can do anything I desire to do and I have called your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have promised this to them. I will make it true. Therefore, he says, because God will make it true, you should keep his commandments. But it's pretty clear as you read through not only the rest of Deuteronomy, but even in verse 25, There is an if in verse 25. There is an if there, which makes it seem like they might not fall. But as you continue to read through from 25 to 28, by the time you get to 28, it doesn't seem like an if anymore. It seems like a when. When you are disobedient, this is going to happen. And by the time we get to the end of Deuteronomy, as we've already discussed, Moses has no more ifs. It will happen. You will be disobedient. You will get kicked out. The land won't be yours. This is the difficulty with the law. The Jews then interpret this as saying, well, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we devote ourselves to the law. This wasn't simple legalism. This wasn't simple legalism. This was a command that God gave to them. And they said, we need to follow the law with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. And if we do that, then maybe God will be kind to us and lead us back into the land. As Christians, we know that this is not true. We don't read this as Hebrews. We don't read this as Israelites. We read this as Christians. We know to whom the promises came into fruition. We know to whom the promises were truly given and now, even now, abide in. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The promise, then, does not rest in the people of Israel being obedient to the commands of God, but Christ being obedient to the commands of God. If there is any one book in the New Testament that looks and sounds and feels like Deuteronomy, it's the book of Matthew. Matthew is chocked full of Deuteronomic language and imagery and, and concepts. It's just rife with them. 
immediately in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gets up and begins to talk about the law, before he even starts to talk about the law, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. And a lot of Christians balk at that. As a matter of fact, there is a huge number of scholars that say Matthew actually stands against Paul in the New Testament. Matthew wanted law-abiding Christians. Paul said, no thank you, and they fought at Antioch. Now, they're all wrong, but there are people out there who say that. But Jesus is very clear. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill it. I came to bring it to its rightful end and conclusion. No place can this be seen better than to compare the beginning of Moses, or compare the beginning of, of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and the, the benefits that accrue to obedience and to see how, even in Matthew, those are already coming true for Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew. First to Matthew 12. Already in the book of Matthew, especially in Matthew 9, but in other places as well, we have this repeating refrain. The crowds were great and they were coming to him. The crowds were great and they were coming to him. The report of his work went through all the people in that district. They all went away to spread his fame through that district. Verse 37 of chapter 9, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. He looks around and he sees crowds every single place he goes. And then in Matthew chapter 12, when the scribes and the Pharisees come up to him and say, in verse 38, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. How do we know you are who you claim to be? Verse 39, he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then he says in verse 42, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. At the very pinnacle, the very height of Israel, sat King David and his son Solomon. And there was never a time in Israel when Israel seemed more like the promised people Israel than when Solomon sat on the throne over the largest area that Israel had ever commanded, at peace with the enemies all around him, building the temple of God for God to dwell there and praying that God might give him wisdom so that he might rule over all the people. That wisdom so great and so famous that brought people from all over the world, just as Deuteronomy says, to come to him to hear of this great wise man. Just as the people had a taste of obedience and were given the land, Solomon is given a taste of the wisdom that God had promised. And just like the people, he failed. Later in life, Solomon lived a wreck of a life. Ecclesiastes is a book written by Solomon to basically say all of the wisdom that he was given, as he spent it under the sun, it was all futility. There was nothing there. But Jesus not only has the people coming to him, but he says, Behold, 
something greater than Solomon is here. This is wisdom standing amongst you. This is wisdom. And the people are coming to hear Christ's wisdom. Just as the people got a taste of the land, Jesus actually inherits the land, and he inherits more than the land. Again, the Great Commission is terribly important, not just because he sends his disciples out, but because he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority is kingdom language. It is the language of a king, and it's not just the language of the kingdom in heaven, but on earth. He now goes up on a mountain like Moses and looks out at all the earth, and he says, it's mine. It's mine. I have been given the land. I have been given authority and power over all things. I have been given it. It's mine. I have received the land because I've been obedient to God's call. While we will fail, the the import of the law and the way we should read the law is knowing always that the people fail, but Christ does not. This doesn't tell us, this doesn't tell us how we are in every single circumstance to relate back to the law. This doesn't tell us what we're supposed to do with laws about stoning. This doesn't tell us what we're supposed to do with laws about food and clothing, what we're supposed to do with archaic laws that no longer concern us. This isn't going to help us with those issues. We need help with those issues, and by the grace of God, we will get those as we go through the book of Deuteronomy. But this is a huge puzzle piece that fits into place for us. The law is not for us to keep. The law was for Christ to be faithful to. And now that Christ has won the rewards of keeping the law forever and ever, amen, for he will never be tempted, he will never fail, we get those promises in Christ Jesus. By believing in him, by trusting in him, we get what he got. Just as the song we just got done singing says, Why should I gain from his reward? What was his reward? His reward was all of the earth. It was the land that God had promised. It was wisdom from all over the earth. More than that, the people were told, how can you maintain faithfulness to God? You maintain faithfulness by remembering who he is. You look to God. You do not look at the surrounding culture. So what do we do? The New Testament, time and time again, who do we look to for how we are to live our lives? We do not look to the commandments, but we look to Christ. Colossians 3, we just got done just months ago. We got done dealing with this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He says, you are to look to Christ. Even the passage from Philippians that my wife read this morning, that we sang about. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. Or verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God says, Paul says, through the work of the Holy Spirit, this is what you look toward. Do you want to know how you are to live? You look to Christ. That is what you look to. As much as the people were to look at Horeb, to remember that incident with God, we look all the more to Christ. 
that incident on the cross, specifically in Philippians, he says, look at him on the cross. On the cross is everything you need to know about God. There is judgment, there is wrath, there is love, there's compassion. All of it is found there. Nowhere else. When God exists as a fire on the mountain, there is compassion and goodness there, but not like there is on the cross. There is wrath and anger there, but not like there is on the cross. Everything you need to know about God, the Almighty Father, and Jesus Christ, His Son, can be known by looking at the cross and the resurrection. While we have not ferreted out the full implication of the law for Christians today, let's be clear about what we do have. We cannot fulfill the law but Christ has done it for us. We cannot bring to fruition the promises of God, but Christ has done so for us. Therefore, we no longer need the law to know God, for we have Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has redeemed a people from the curse of the law, and more than that, has brought in multitudes to the kingdom of God. While the law has much to say to us, let us affirm with whole hearts this truth. We do not seek our own righteousness. We do not go to the law to find out how we can be better people before God. We do not seek our own righteousness or our own salvation through the law, but only through Christ alone. That is where our hope is found. The law leads us and ends in Christ. May God be praised for that. Let us pray. Father, we are glad that we do not have to follow your law, that it is not required for our salvation. We are not glad simply so that we can get out of some awkward laws. We're not glad simply so that our diets are not restricted. We're not glad so that we don't have to follow laws about how to dress and how to act. That is not, Father, why we are glad we don't need to follow the law. We are glad that we don't need to follow the law because the law is too much for us on our own. We have neither hearts nor minds to love you enough to follow your law. So, Father, we come before you grateful today, not that we don't have the law before us, but all the more because we have Christ before us. Therefore, there is no condemnation for us who are in Jesus Christ because Christ has won our salvation. Christ has paid our debt. Christ has accrued our benefits for himself and he lavishes his gifts upon his people. Father, as we are reminded of this, we don't, we don't look down upon your law, but rather we esteem Christ all the more that his work among us might bring him glory and praise forever. For your law was good and righteous and holy, but we were unable to keep it. Therefore, Christ kept it for us. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for holding them true in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We pray, Father, that in our hiding in Jesus Christ, we might escape from your judgment, your wrath, and might know your peace within the land. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.